afternoon, everybody. Uh, Your Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to your, our beautiful National Library of Australia. I'm Murray Louise Ayres, the Library's Assistant Director General, National Collections Access. As we begin, I acknowledge the traditional, uh, traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land on which our building now stands and which we are privileged to call home. I'm delighted that you've joined us this afternoon to hear from this rather illustrious group of people in the front row. I welcome His Excellency, Mr. Sam Fabrizzi, Ambassador and Head of Delegation from the Delegation of the European Union to Australia and New Zealand. Jane Drake-Wachman, Director of the EU Centre for Global Affairs at the University of Adelaide. Dr. Kate Flaherty from the Australian National University and of course our two main speakers today, Emeritus Professor Ian Donaldson from the University of Melbourne and Professor Ian Gadd from Bath Spa University. We're gathered here this afternoon to mark two special occasions. Europe Day, which takes place in just a couple of weeks on the 9th of May and celebrates peace and unity in Europe and the 400th anniversary of the death of Shakespeare, which occurs today. This anniversary is a rare opportunity to delve into the legacy of a man whose contribution to English language and culture is immeasurable, permeating everyday speech on such a basic level that most speakers are not even aware that they are quoting his work. Uh, in fact, at a large meeting I attended yesterday, we were talking on this matter and uh, I burst into song from a Shakespeare play and I won't do that again today. <laughs> the library holds a remarkable Shakespeare collection. As you would expect, we have many published editions of his plays and poetry and extensive holdings of published criticism, uh, which have, in course includes Kate's 2011 exploration of contemporary Australian performances. We're also fortunate enough to be custodians of many archival items emerging from the performance and imagined reality of Shakespeare's plays here in Australia and relating to Australians overseas. Our pictures collection contains numerous posters advertising performances of Shakespeare's plays, photographs of memorials to Shakespeare, including some by Frank Hurley, original costume and set design sketches by actor, theatre designer and artistic director Robin Lovejoy, sketches, paintings and photographs depicting many performances over the years, including Dame Judi Dench's turn as Perdita in The Winter's Tale and Viola in Twelfth Night, and Catherine Hepburn and Sir Robert Heltman as Isabella and Angelo in Measure for Measure. I could go on. Our manuscripts collection abounds in Shakespeareana, including manuscript and sheet music inspired by and for performance in the plays. We hold the extensive personal papers of John Bell, spanning over 60 years, including correspondence, diaries, notebooks, production files, scripts and teaching notes. We're fortunate enough to have not one but two interviews with Ian Donaldson here in our oral history collection and the recording of an address that he may have forgotten but that he gave at ANU in 1976 on comedy. So like every great library, we have great Shakespeare collections. If you want to explore the wealth of Shakespeare resources available across libraries in Australia and cultural institutions, well, you could search the library's trove service. 
You could find the very first mention of Shakespeare in an Australian newspaper. On the 8th of September 1805, the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser includes an advertisement for an auction of a property in prospect with the goods of a presumably unlucky householder, including a set of Shakespeare's published works. This among, oh, a few hundred thousand items or so you could delve into in Trove. Luckily, we have Ian Donaldson and Ian Gadd here today to present a distillation of their decades and research and thought in this area rather than having to wade through that, that huge body of material. So I welcome you all to the library today and I would now like to invite His Excellency, Mr Sam Fabrizzi, to open our proceedings in recognition of Europe Day and Shakespeare's nature as a very great European and a very, very great human being. Thank you. Thank you, Marie-Louise, and thank you all of you for being uh, here and uh, the National Library for inviting me. So I should, uh, should start uh, saying, uh, or quoting from Romeo and Julia, saying, your patient ears attend. And you might find even strange that myself, representing the European Union and Italian by origin, uh, stand before you to declaim about the merits of uh, the great uh, English playwright Shakespeare. But I ask you, though I may be fortune fool, who better to withstand the gales of controversy of Shakespeare than the, a representative of the European Union? Certainly, the European Union and Australia have one common thing, uh, at least, that we are both used to controversy. Certainly, Mark Twain uh, is reputed to have said that so far as anyone actually knows and can prove, Shakespeare of Stratford on Avon never wrote a play in his life. And I look at Professor Donaldson here. As we know, his work has been variously allocated to De Ver, Bacon, Marlowe, Stanley, Manners, and many others. But, most noble sirs, the which I shall report will bear no credit, were not the proof so nigh. I can even add that in some part of Italy, even someone claiming the Shakespeare was an Italian one. <laughs> According to Professor Martino Luvara, Shakespeare was not born in Stratford or Avon, but in Messina in Sicily. As uh, it's true, it's, uh, as Michelangelo Florio scrolled La Lanza, which is the translation of uh, Shakespeare, fleeing uh, the Sicily from the Holy Inquisition, the family moved to London and changed the name to Shakespeare, and the rest <laughs> is history. So Shakespeare might be or maybe not English, but the plays or whoever wrote them have been performed all over Europe, and the first translation of them were produced in French and German. According to one source, the complete translation began, began by August Wilhelm von Schlegel and finished by Ludwig Tieck in 1833, became the masterwork of German language, establishing Shakespeare as the third German greatest author after Goethe and Schiller. <laughs> so I think I can claim that Shakespeare was definitely an uh, European and the European Union is proudly to remember all great playwrights from all over member states. And I think we should also say that uh, Miguel Cervantes, another great uh, uh, European, died on April the 2nd, 1616, one day before uh, Shakespeare. Uh, certainly the 
Many would say that the European Union and Don Quixote have also a lot in common. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, this is not certainly a case for a lecture on European Union policies, but I can certainly say that European Union is promoting uh, to promote cultural diversity and cultural diplomacy is part of our message. And as Federica Mogherini, the European Union High Representative for Foreign Affairs noted only last week, uh, cultural diplomacy is an integral part of our common foreign policy and Europe is, culture, is a cultural superpower that shaped the whole world. So I therefore thank the European uh, Union Center of the Universities of Adelaide, Jane in particular, and the National Library for joining forces to bring uh, together two great events, the commemoration of the death of Shakespeare on 23rd April 1616, and the celebration of Europe Day, uh, the official day of which is May the 9th, May 9th uh, 9 of May uh, 1950, when the then uh, Foreign Minister of France, Robert Schumann, made the famous declaration inviting Europeans to pull together uh, for this fantastic journey that European Union is. So in conclusion, uh, we can say, or I can say, the Shakespeare's work uh, is uh, as relevant as today as it was 400 years ago. And in these uh, troubled days for Europe will be even too natural to say, to be or not to be European? This is the question. <laughs> and uh, as a committed European, my reply will remain yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. My task is simply to introduce the speakers slightly more formally. Um, however, as you all have access to their CVs on our website, I will be very brief because we want to hear from them and not from me. So I, um, as I introduce the speakers, I would ask them to join me here uh, on the stage. Our keynote speaker is Emeritus Professor Ian Donaldson. He is simply, and it is no exaggeration, he is Australia's greatest literary scholar and it is a great privilege to have him with us today. His international reputation is unparalleled, having chaired the faculties of English at both the Universities of Oxford and the University of Cambridge and held the Regis Chair of Rhetoric and English Literature at Edinburgh University which is the world's oldest chair in English language and literature. And of course, here at the ANU, he created the Humanities Research Centre in 1974, uh, an initiative which has been replicated in many universities around the world since that time, and notably, of course, under his own leadership at the University of Cambridge in 2001. Now, um, as Ian joins me on the stage, I have to add that he is, of course, the world's authority on a very close friend and fellow playwright of William Shakespeare, that is Ben Jonson. And it is reputedly a fun night out on the town with Ben that might have caused Will's untimely death. So I think Ian Donaldson has... Um, a special responsibility for today's event, Ian. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to sit for one moment while I introduce 
Ian Gadd, who is Professor of English Literature at Bath Spa University in the United Kingdom. Now, he is, of course, a Shakespearean, but he brings to this conversation a special perspective as president of the Society for Authorship, Reading and Publishing, and his expertise very relevant in this setting in the National Library of Australia in the history of the book. So, Ian, will you also join me on the stage? Now, our Master of Ceremonies today, for what I hope will be uh, sufficient time for a short interaction, is Dr. Kate Flaherty, who will, will stay seated at the front until later in the proceedings. She is a, is a lecturer in English and drama at the ANU, and she brings to this conversation the expertise of performance and in particular the history of performance of Shakespeare's works, especially here in Australia, and the interplay between those performances and the public culture of the day. And finally, before I sit down, and um, as I sit down, we will seamlessly um, go through the proceedings, I want to recognise specifically Nicholas Jost, who is the Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Adelaide and serves on the advisory board for the EU Centre for Global Affairs. And it is, I think, really, it's uh, Nick Jose's uh, powerful imagination which has shaped today's conversation in order to design specifically to be able to mark both Europe Day 2016 and the quarter centenary of Shakespeare's death. Ian. Thank you so much, Jane, for that very generous, over-generous introduction. And uh, thank you all for coming along this afternoon. It's wonderful to be back in this familiar city and familiar venue amongst uh, so many friends and familiar faces. On the 23rd of April, 1616, 400 years ago to this very day, William Shakespeare died in the small Warwickshire town of his birth. He was 53 years of age, still young or youngish by modern reckonings, though his death mightn't have seen to his contemporaries like an early departure from the world. Uh, most of uh, the population who survived childhood uh, in this period in England were apt to die before the age of 60. And old age, or senectitude, as it was sometimes rather lugubriously called, was a state that one entered at what today might be thought a surprisingly youthful age. Many of Shakespeare's fellow writers had died or were soon to do so at a younger age than he. Christopher Marlowe, you remember, in a violent brawl in a tavern at the age of 29. Francis Beaumont, following a stroke at 31. Robert Greene, penitent and impoverished of a fever in the garret of a shoemaker's house at 34. Thomas Kidd, after bitter times and privy broken passions, as he put it, at 35. George Herbert, the poet, a 
of consumption at 39. John Fletcher, Beaumont's collaborator, from the plague at 46. Edmund Spencer, for lack of bread, so it was rumoured, at 47. And Thomas Middleton, also at 47, from causes unknown. The cause or causes of Shakespeare's death are similarly unknown, though they've become in recent years a topic of persistent speculation. Syphilis, contracted by visits to the brothels of Turnbull Street. Mercury or arsenic poisoning following treatment for this infection. Alcoholism. Obesity. Cardiac failure. A sudden stroke brought on by the alarming news of a family disgrace. The Shakespeare's son-in-law, Thomas Quiney, husband of his younger daughter, Judith, had been responsible for the pregnancy and death of a young local woman named Margaret Wheeler. All these have been advanced as possible factors leading to Shakespeare's death. Francis Thackeray, director of the Institute for Human Evolution at the University of Witwatersrand, believes that cannabis was the ultimate cause of Shakespeare's death and has been hoping in defiance of the famous ban on Shakespeare's tomb remember, cursed be he who moves my bones, to inspect the poet's teeth in order to confirm this theory. Teeth are not bones, Dr. Thackeray, uh, somewhat controversially, I would have thought, insists. <laughs> no convincing evidence, alas, has yet been produced to support any of these theories. More intriguing than the actual pathology of Shakespeare's death, however, may be another set of problems that have, I think, uh, extraordinarily largely escaped the notice of his biographers. Though they seem at times, I think, in a wider, more general sense, <clears throat> to have held the poet's own, often rather playful, attention. And they turn on the question of fame, how it's constituted, what fame actually is, how slowly and indirectly it's often achieved. How easily, as the King of Navarre and his courtiers, for all their fine resolutions, soon discover in Love's Labour's Lost, <clears throat> it may be delayed or diverted or lost altogether from view. On the 25th of April, 1616, two days after his death, Shakespeare was buried in the chancel of Holy Trinity Church at Stratford. Having earned this modest place of honour, as much it would seem through his local reputation as a respected citizen, as from any deep sense of his wider professional achievements. No memorial gatherings were held in the nation's capital, where he'd made his career, or it would seem anywhere else in the country. The company of players that he'd led for so long didn't pause, so far as we know, to acknowledge his passing, nor did his patron and protector, King James, whom he'd loyally served. Only one writer, a minor Oxfordshire poet named William Bass, felt moved to offer at some unknown date following his death, it may have been years later, a few lines to the memory of Shakespeare with whom he may not have been personally acquainted. Hoping that Shakespeare might be interred at Westminster, 
but foreseeing problems of crowding in the Abbey, Bass began by urging other distinguished English poets to roll over in their tombs in order to make room for this new arrival. Renowned Spencer, lie thought more nigh to learned Chaucer, and rare Beaumont, lie a little nearer Spencer, to make room for Shakespeare in your threefold, fourfold tomb. Well, none of these poets actually responded to Bass's injunctions, <laughs> and Shakespeare was not to win his place in the Abbey uh, for more than 100 years. <clears throat> when Richard Boyle, third Earl of Burlington, commissioned William Kent to design and Peter Schemakers to sculpt this life-sized white marble statue of the poet standing cross-legged, leaning thoughtfully on a pile of books to adorn Poet's Corner. On the wall behind the statue, erected um, in the Abbey in January 1741, is a a tablet with a Latin inscription that was perhaps contributed by the poet uh, Alexander Pope, conceding the belated arrival of the memorial. In English it reads, William Shakespeare, 124 years after his death, erected by public love. Public love because it was erected by subscription. But notice those, those words, 124 years after his death. It took some time for this honouring to happen. My question this afternoon is, why? Bass's verses were in early circulation, but they weren't published until 1633, and then mistakenly, along with the poems of, uh, of John Donne, who was thought to have been their author. No other poem to Shakespeare's memory is known to have been written before the appearance of the first folio in 1623. No effort appears to have been made in the months and years following the poet's death to assemble a tributary volume honouring the man and his works. None of Shakespeare's other contemporaries noted the immediate fact of his passing in any surviving letter, journal or record. No dispatches, private or diplomatic, carry the news of his death beyond Britain to the wider world. Why did the death of Shakespeare cause so little public grief, so little public excitement in and beyond the country of his birth? Why wasn't his passing an occasion for widespread mourning and widespread celebration of his prodigious achievements? What does this curious silence tell us about Shakespeare's reputation in 1616, about the status of his profession, and the state of letters more generally in Britain at this time? Shakespeare's often thought to have died uh, on his own birthday, which um, in the early modern world was considered quite a feat for, as uh, one writer, Sir Thomas Brown, put it, uh, when there is no less than 365 days to determine their lives in every year, that the first day should make the last, that the tail of the snake should return into its mouth precisely at that time, and that they should wind up upon the day of their nativity is indeed a remarkable coincidence. 
In fact, uh, we don't know when Shakespeare had his birthday. We don't know when he was born. We know that he was baptized in Holy Trinity Church because the record is still there on the 25th of April, 1564. Very often, baptism took place three days uh, after birth, but very often it didn't either. So he, he may have died on his birthday or it may not. But if you were an astrologer or an almanac maker or a, a eulogist in early modern Britain, uh, you didn't care terribly much about pedantic detail of that kind if you could see some sort of correspondence. There's great interest in the circularities and the symmetries in the lives of wondrous people, prominent people. So, for example, when in 1603 Queen Elizabeth died in April of that year, Thomas Decker, writing uh, his book in that year about what he called The Wondrous Year of 1603, looked immediately for symmetries in the life and death, the birth and death of Elizabeth. And he was able, through a good deal of ingenuity, to find these here. Her nativity and death, he wrote, being memorable by this wonder. But when Shakespeare died in 1616, no one, I think remarkably, no one actually pointed this out. Uh, no one felt inclined to comment on a similar apparent symmetry in the dates of his birth and death. So at that point, you might perhaps conclude he wasn't yet regarded as what was called in the early modern world a wonder. Nor did anyone in 1616 choose to remark on another curious fact which strikes us certainly today about the death of Shakespeare, that it had occurred upon St George's Day. That day was famous in Shakespeare's time for the annual rites of <clears throat> prayer, procession and feasting at Windsor by members of the Order of the Garter, England's leading chivalric institution, founded in 1348 by Edward III. Marking as it did the anniversary of the supposed martyrdom in AD 303 of St George of Cappadocia, St George's Day was celebrated in numerous countries in and beyond Europe as it is today. But it had emerged somewhat bizarrely, as it's always seemed to me, in late medieval times as a day of particular national significance in England. So there is a, an image which you'll probably recognize as Uccello's uh, representation of St George murdering the dragon. Uh, that, that's to be dated around 1440, and you'll notice that the, the flag St. George is carrying is the flag of England. And for a uh, hundred years before that, it had been associated with, with England. So already we have this, this tradition. It was, the day was struck out of the calendar in Henry VIII's time um, because it was thought to be a, a, a popish superstition. Um, uh, worshipping saints of, of any kind, but particularly someone like this who'd killed a dragon. But a dozen years before Shakespeare's birth, it was uh, restored into the British calendar and it was further revived under King James and celebrated in England with jousts and tournaments and other diversions. 
There is um, the so-called Red Cross Knight from Edmund Spencer's famous epic poem, The Fairy Queen. And there he is killing another dragon on behalf of, of, of England. In 1616, St. George's Day then might well have been seen as an appropriate date upon which the man who is now viewed as England's greatest writer had met his death. But this happy coincidence, so attractive in later times to the moulding of a national legend, was seemingly ignored by Shakespeare's contemporaries. We know what was happening at court on St. George's Day, 1616. This is the day exactly 400 years ago of Shakespeare's death. We know what was happening uh, on that day thanks to an assiduous court gossip. A man who was called John Chamberlain who used to hang around the court and write long, newsy, gossipy letters to his friend, the ambassador, Sir Dudley Carlton. And not much escaped his notice. And from his correspondence, we know that what happened at court, who, who James uh, I, seemingly without knowledge of what was happening in Stratford, that the leader of his own acting troupe, King's men was lying, dying at that very minute, had summoned another poet to court to entertain him on that day. And he was a man who I imagine you have never heard of, uh, called William Fennell. William Fennell was a writer of doggerel verses, but he was a real a royal favourite. Uh, James loved, loved the, the terrible verses that he wrote. Uh, often in company uh, and in competition with another writer of doggerel who had been a Thames bargeman, who was known as John, John Taylor, the water poet, uh, who took uh, epic journeys around Britain and beyond and then wrote poems about them. And these two, Fanor and Taylor, used, used to meet for what were called uh, at that time flightings, that is poetic competitions. And, and James loved watching and listening to these and intervening. Uh, so Fenor on this day well, chose to recite to King James his own versified history of the Order of the Garter, which concluded with a prayer that the Order and its members might serve as a bulwark against the growing Catholic threat. So uh, Chamberlain reports all this and he uh, reports on the calibre of those who were admitted that day to the Order of the Garter. He talks about the growing tensions between Spain and, and England. But he says nothing whatever about William Shakespeare. And in the days and weeks that followed, when the news of Shakespeare's death, we must imagine, began to filter through uh, eventually to London, there is no surviving mention in private correspondence or official documents of Shakespeare's name. Other more pressing matters were now absorbing the nation. Shakespeare had made a remarkably modest exit 
from the theatre of the world, largely unapplauded, largely unobserved. It was a very quiet death. Now, um, the silence that followed Shakespeare's death, I think, is the more remarkable. Uh, coming as it did in an age that had developed such elaborate rituals of public mourning, panegyric, and commemoration, uh, most lavishly displayed at the death of a monarch or a peer of the realm. But it was occasionally you had these huge funerals and celebrations at the death of an exceptional commoner. Let me just very quickly show you a couple of these. Consider the case of this man. This is a man who was very famous in his day called William Camden. He was a, a great antiquarian scholar. He was headmaster of Westminster School. He was Ben Johnson's teacher actually at that school and teacher of actually most of the great 17th century English poets at one stage or another. Uh, and he uh, died in London in November 1623, uh, just a couple of weeks, as chance would have it, after the publication of Shakespeare's first folio in that year. Now, Camden was a man of, of really very humble social origins, like Shakespeare himself. Shakespeare's uh, father, as you probably know, was a, a glove maker in uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, and a leather merchant. Uh, and uh, it's thought that uh, Shakespeare probably worked in his shop as an apprentice at some time and, and may have been expected to continue in the family business. Camden uh, was the son of a man who was called a painter stainer. That's to say, a man whose job it was to decorate coats of arms and heraldic devices, choosing the appropriate color for, for those. It was it had a certain amount of skill in that, but it was nevertheless a, a mechanical job. And uh, Camden was thought to, uh, expected to follow in, in his father's footsteps, but other things occurred. And he became, became England's great historian. And uh, at the time of his death, he was uh, widely recognized as a great scholar. And when he died, eulogies were delivered in Oxford. And they were published uh, along with a lot of other tributes in uh, a memorial volume published soon after his death. And he had this great funeral in Westminster Abbey uh, accompanied by uh, a large retinue of mourners led by 26 poor men wearing gowns and followed by soberly attired gentlemen, esquires, knights, members of the College of Arms, earls, barons, peers of the realm, bishops, divines, and so on. <clears throat> now, there was a reason why, there was one reason in particular why uh, he was given such a terrific send-off, because he was the man who had helped to organize another big funeral. This is Queen Elizabeth's funeral, if you're, if you're looking for, for, for big, big funerals. And remember that if you lived in, in England at the time, instead of going along to a football match on a Saturday afternoon, you looked around for other uh, events. You looked for a good hanging, uh, <laughs> or with better luck, uh, a funeral 
of this sort, and they, they processed through the, the, the streets of London, and the public turned out in the hundreds and thousands to watch these events. And the, um, the, 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 the funeral of, of Queen Elizabeth in 1603 was a, was a huge event. And Camden was the man, because he was the uh, herald of arms, who, who planned out the, the, whole, the whole thing. And he was, he was there. There he is in the middle as herald of arms at the funeral. And he did his own drawings uh, of the funeral. There are some of his sketches which are now in, in the British Museum. And um, so uh, there he was. So there were particular reasons why you would uh, expect that when his time came, he would also be, be given a very good, a very good uh, send-off. But <clears throat> you would ask Shakespeare too. Shakespeare was, he was the top man in the day, was he not? He was the outstanding poet in uh, Jacobean England, the outstanding dramatist, surely very celebrated. He'd written all of these plays, nearly 40 plays. So why wasn't he honoured in a similar fashion? Well, it's curious um, to realise that he probably wasn't recognised at that time as England's outstanding writer. At this um, extraordinary moment in the history of English letters and intellectual life, there are actually a lot of contenders for, for that, that particular honour, to be the great... Uh, there, there were those... There were those who thought that Francis Bacon, for example, was the, the great writer in, in, in England, but th there were others too. Uh, Camden himself made a list of what he called the most pregnant wits of these our times whom succeeding ages may justly admire. And he put Shakespeare's name in there, but he put a lot of other names in too. And some of these names you'll know, and some of them, I guess, you won't. Edmund Spencer, John Owen, Thomas Campion, Michael Drayton, George Chapman, John Marston, Hugh Holland, Ben Johnson, both of whom he taught at Westminster School. They were all okay. He thought they were, they were pregnant wits. But, but, but the top writer, he thought, of the time was another man altogether. It was this man. It was a poet that uh, Cameron himself had got to know at Oxford called Philip Sidney, Sir Philip Sidney. And uh, he was the one that Cameron most passionately admired and continued to regard um, following Sidney's early death at the age of 32 on the battlefield at Zutphen in 1560 as the country's supreme writer. Uh, Britain is the glory of the earth and its precious jewel, but Sydney was the precious jewel of Britain, he wrote. <clears throat> and others, uh, uh, others uh, wrote in similar terms. His friend Richard Carey wrote, Will you have all in all for prose and verse? Take the miracle of our age, Sir Philip Sydney. So Shakespeare and the rest that I've just named, they were all 
they're all admirable writers. They're all, they're all very good. They're all pregnant wits. But Sydney was something else. Sydney was the miracle of the age. And when, I'll skip through this, but when the time came for Sydney's funeral, he was given a send-off such as never had been seen in England up, up until the moment. And this is a, a scene from a most remarkable scroll that actually uh, the antiquarian John Aubrey uh, saw in Gloucestershire when he was a boy and wrote about. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's, it's an early movie. It's a, a long scroll, um, it's on two pins and you can wind it and you can see the whole funeral uh, procession. Uh, Tis pity it's not redone, said Aubrey at the end of his account of it. It has been redone. If you Google it, you'll, you'll get it online. You'll be able to watch the whole procession. There's, there's Sydney's 13-year-old page boy with a broken lance trailing the lance following up at the end. But this, this was a huge thing. You know, it goes on all, all day long. So the question remains, why didn't Shakespeare get something like this? Well, all right. There are political reasons. Sidney's funeral was a political event. He was seen, uh, he was seen as a, a real European because he had travelled for two years very methodically through Europe, being seen as a kind of Protestant champion. Uh, and he was in touch with writers and statesmen and monarchs right, right across Europe. His funeral took place eight days after the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scots. It was, it was a politically very sensitive moment to have a big show of, of, of this kind. But the way in which, if you go back and look at the funeral, the way in which he was being acclaimed repeatedly was as England's top poet. And in a gesture which was unprecedented at this time, but then became... Um, a, uh, a matter of habit at the death of poets. Four volumes of memorial verse were produced from the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and Leiden. Uh, and uh, it included verses by King James himself. If you go back and think of uh, other English poets, uh, here's uh, Thomas Wyatt, Sir Thomas Wyatt, he, he had what his most recent biographer calls a chorus of epitaphs, elegies, mortuary sonnets, and funeral songs uh, at, at his death. Edmund Spencer, at his death in 1599, was buried in the abbey next to Chaucer, his hearse being attended by poets, mournful elegies, and poems with the pens that wrote them thrown into his tomb. Michael Drayton, at his death in 1631, was buried in turn in the abbey next to Spencer's tomb. His funeral, so the antiquary William Fullman reported, was attended by the gentlemen of the four inns of court and others of note about the town in order by two and two in a procession stretching from Drayton's lodgings in Fleet Street all the way to Strand Bridge, the present site of Somerset House. 
21 years after Shakespeare's death, here's Ben Johnson, his old friend and rival and colleague. And um, for many, at the death of Johnson in 1637, this marked the end of an entire era in, in England, as Sidney's death had. They wrote about this at the time. It was as though English poetry itself had died. Uh, he, he also had a huge funeral at the Abbey, attended by nobility and others. Uh, and uh, with his death, it was said, English poetry itself had seemed to die. Let me just give you very briskly one last example. This is a man you're, I'm sure you, you won't have come across at all. This is, he was called William Cartwright. And he was a, a great favorite of Charles I. And when he died in 1643, Charles I actually went into mourning, uh, saying that since the muses had so much mourned for the loss of such a son, it'd be a shame for him not to appear in mourning too for the loss of such a subject. Shakespeare, silent. So why? If I, I just reach the, some tentative answers to this, this question. Well, one reason was that Charles was terribly keen on the theatre and James wasn't actually very much. He, 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 were, he was a very impatient theatre goer. Uh, so that's why nothing much happened at court. But what about for the general public? <coughs> uh, When, because if you remember, the, the king's men uh, not only performed regularly at court, they performed at their two theatres, Blackfriars um, and uh, the Globe Theatre. And this is Richard Burbage, who was the lead actor for the, for the company. And when, when Burbage died in uh, 1619, uh, he died just a few days uh, uh, short of the death of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Anne, I should say, Queen Anne, uh, Anne, of, Anne of Denmark. And uh, the public was terribly upset at the death of Burbage and uh, the fact that the theatre, not only had Burbage died, but uh, the theatres had all been closed down out of respect for, uh, for, for Anne's death, uh, and there are verses written at the time uh, noticing the public complaint uh, and sadness at his death. But there are no such comments for the death of Shakespeare. Why is that? Why was Burbage more mourned than the playwright whose works he'd interpreted? Well, I think my, my tentative answer to these questions is this, that I think, uh, I think the reason lay in the status of the profession to which Shakespeare belonged, uh, a, a profession which didn't yet have a name. The very words playwright and dramatist hadn't yet entered the language. Uh, people knew about the lead actors. They went along 
to the theatre. They went along to the Globe to see Burbage. He, he was a famous man. They didn't necessarily know who'd written that play, Macbeth, that he was so good in, because the playwrights were backroom boys. Uh, they were invisible men. They worked often anonymously, uh, often in small teams, and um, there was no ready way of discovering their identities. There were no theatre programs. There were playbills that were posted you know, in the theatre, but they didn't have the authors' names. They had the players' names, not the authors' names at, at the time. Um, so uh, at, the, at the time, people w would not have known what Shakespeare had really done. Plays were published. Yes, they were. They were being published. And Professor Gadd, who's an expert in this area, is going to talk to us in a moment about the publication of plays and how this bears on the question of Shakespeare's visibility at this time. And a lot of Shakespeare's plays were published, but not, not by any means all. There was as yet no collected edition of the works of Shakespeare. You would not have known really what the man had done in 1616. So this is the contrast that I want to put to you uh, today. The contrast between what I'm calling the unknown Shakespeare <coughs> and the Shakespeare that we're celebrating today, who we would have to say is the most famous writer the world has ever known. He belongs today not simply to England and the flag of St. George, but to readers and playgoers throughout the world. Today's event aptly and generously sponsored by the EU Centre at the University of Adelaide reminds us that Shakespeare was also, in a significant sense, as we've heard uh, earlier this afternoon, a European writer. He drew many of his plots from French and Italian sources. He located his plays in Verona and Venice and Rome and Athens, cities, incidentally, that he'd never visited because it seems that he never left England. But he'd, he'd been adopted over the years, uh, in, as we've heard, in Germany, in Italy, as though he were a native son. Uh, last year, a group of British and continental scholars journeyed to Brussels to petition the EU to have Shakespeare instated as the first European poet laureate in this year, <laughs> 2016, in celebration of the 400th anniversary of his death. I'm, I've, I've been trying the last week through my friends in Britain to find out exactly the state the status of that petition. I hear from the prime mover that they got a very friendly reception in Brussels, but I didn't know what's happened beyond that. But Shakespeare's imagination and Shakespeare's reach extended well beyond Europe, and he's now been embraced, as no other writer has in human history, by nations in every corner of the world. In 2012, the year of the London Olympics, the Royal Shakespeare Company, in collaboration with other institutions, organized the World Shakespeare Festival, initiating the production in London 
of all 37 plays in the Shakespearean canon performed by actors from more than 50 countries speaking in nearly 50 different languages. True to the spirit of the theatre in which so many of his plays were performed, that's the Shakespeare had now indeed gone global. <laughs> Today, 23rd of April, 2016, as we meet here in Canberra to remember and to celebrate his extraordinary achievement, we can recall the predictive phrase that his colleague Ben Johnson used in his memorial poem to the author, my beloved, Mr. William Shakespeare, and what he hath left us that stands now at the head of Shakespeare's first folio. He was not of an age, but for all time. No one had said that. No one had said anything approaching that in 1616. No one had ranked Shakespeare with the great writers of antiquity in that way. No one had foreseen that he would be remembered as he is here in this distant corner of the globe today, so many centuries after his death. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderfully engaging and compelling lecture. Uh, as extraordinary as it may seem that Shakespeare's exit uh, from the theatre of the world should have been, as you say, largely unapplauded and largely unobserved, I'm almost as surprised that no Shakespearean has remarked on this before, so perhaps it's only fitting that it's a Ben Jonson scholar uh, uh, that has pointed it out today. In this month's issue of Vanity Fair, there is an article about the baby boomers generation that is illustrated with a cartoon of a tombstone that reads simply, Google me. <laughs> Some 400 years ago, the nearest equivalent to Google was St. Paul's Churchyard in London, the centre of England's book trade. Shakespeare's death may not, as we have heard, have had the wide, uh, in, widespread impact that we might have expected, but there were other ways to measure a public reputation, and browsing the bookshops to the north of St. Paul's Cathedral was as good as any. Our initial impression may seem disappointing. In 1616, 11 plays were published in London, none were by Shakespeare. The most recent published play of his was the fifth edition of Richard II, which had appeared the year before, and his most recent new play had appeared in print in 1609, and that was Troilus and Cressida. Moreover, those readers, probably very few readers, who had followed Shakespeare's theatrical career with particular interest, they might well have been frustrated that so many of his plays had never been printed. Some 20 plays, including The Tempest, Macbeth, Twelfth Night, Othello, were not published until after Shakespeare's death. Despite this, however, there was actually a good deal of Shakespeare to be had on the bookstalls of late 16th and early 17th century London. During his lifetime, 18 plays were printed, many were reprinted. 45 editions of those plays were published, and that's a much higher figure than any of his theatrical colleagues. Moreover, 
again in comparison with his colleagues, once published, his plays were more likely to be reprinted. As a Shakespeare scholar, Lucas Earn has recently argued, quote, for the English book-buying public, Shakespeare was already the greatest English dramatist in the late 16th and early 17th century. Now, you might listen to that and wonder how we square that, that apparent uh, or at least relative popularity um, in print with the apparent public indifference that met his death. And to answer that, I'd argue, we need to appreciate that there's a difference there's a difference between a published writer, that is somebody who writes works that are printed and published, and becoming an author. The former is a conscious, often demanding activity. The latter is a cultural and often capricious phenomenon. Writers die, authors just go out of print. When we do give Alfonso to the lighter work of ours, we part with our own right. This is Ben Jonson's description in a poem to his friend and colleague, Alfonso Ferrobosco of the moment when publication or performance severs a writer's control over their work. And that remains as true then as it does now, but Johnson was writing at a time when authors had no formal rights over who published their work. There was no copyright in the modern sense. And this was a period when it was perfectly possible for an author's name to be attributed on a title page to a work they'd not actually written. Unlike Johnson, we know very little about Shakespeare's attitude to the printing of his plays, whether he actively sought their publication or not. But we can say that Shakespeare's profile as a playwright in print, that is, Shakespeare as author, that was largely a consequence of a series of successful commercial transactions between publishers, booksellers, and readers in 16th and 17th century England. And the culmination of those transactions was the publication in 1623 of the first collected edition of his plays, the so-called First Folio. By working with two of uh, Shakespeare's theatrical colleagues, negotiating with publishers who already held the publishing rights to those plays that had appeared in print, a consortium of four London publishers brought together 36 plays, half of them never before uh, seen in print. And this may have been seven years after Shakespeare had died and a decade after he'd written his last play, but not only did these publishers believe that there was a market for an imposing collection of play texts, but they believed that Shakespeare's name was the best way to sell it. The extent to which Shakespeare was now an author rather than merely a writer is clear from the first folio's famous title page we saw a few moments ago, which begins, it, Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, and immediately below, a large engraving of Shakespeare's own face. But that's another story. So let's return to 1616. At the end of a long life and a successful career with a wife, children, and grandchildren safely provided for in Stratford, Shakespeare knew that his passing, when it came, would be mourned by family and friends. He may well have taken some pride in the number of quarto playtexts bearing his name to be found on London's bookstalls. But what he didn't know, what he couldn't know, was the extraordinary future that lay ahead for him as an author. As we celebrate 400 years uh, since Shakespeare's death, we do so not so much to make up for the apparent public oversights of 1616, but to acknowledge the enormous cultural importance of his writings. And I'd argue that there we owe a particular debt of gratitude to the printers and publishers of 16th and 17th century London, who between them made sure that Shakespeare was not to be forgotten. <laughs>